I'm ready for that day that He returns and we see Him and our faith becomes sight. I'm ready. May it be today. Well, let's continue to worship the Lord together with the proclamation and reading of Scripture. And we're in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. All of my hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's see Jesus on display here, uh, beginning in verse 12 of Mark's Gospel here in chapter 11. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs, and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. They passed by in the morning, and as they passed by in the morning, they saw that fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray together. Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. God, we pray for grace to understand these verses rightly and that what you want us to know as your people in 2020 will be known from these, uh, these verses. May we hear and may I teach in accordance with the Holy Spirit's intention of inspiring this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of course, you may be seated, and the title of this morning's sermon is Overturned, and taking that just simply from the passage there where Jesus overturns some things. And in saying that he overturns some things, what I really believe is going on here is he's turning them right side up again. Now, we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark together, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and now we're here in chapter 11. We've not skipped anything. We've not uh, prayerfully glossed over anything. We've gone verse by verse, and we've not seen Jesus quite like this yet in Mark's Gospel, have we? I mean, flipping things over, driving people out. We've accustomed so far to seeing Jesus meek and mild, right? I mean, just last week we saw him riding into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a colt, right? 
Is he the lamb or is he the lion? Well, uh, yes and amen. Amen? I mean, Jesus is the lion and the lamb. In Christ we will see and we have seen complete humility and infinite majesty, right? Boundless grace and perfect justice. The good news of our God is we don't have to choose one or the other. Utter submission to the will of the Father and absolute sovereignty. Behold our God, right? I mean, again, just the previous day, Palm Sunday in chapter 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem in that humble fashion, in a climactic moment. They're spreading their cloaks on the ground, right? That's what they would do in those days when a king was arriving, spread the cloaks on the ground, and then they got the palm branches out, which are symbols of hope and peace, and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in this climactic moment, he walks into the temple, and you remember what happens when he gets there? They're ready for fireworks and ascension, and it says he looks around at everything, and left. It's like we said last week, it's like being at the wedding and the bride is entered and the groom just walks off the stage. It's like, what, what, what was that about? That's not what we expected. And now he comes back to the temple and he does something on the way to the temple. And of course, we'll study that together. When Jesus enters the temple on Sunday and then leaves without doing much, that was unexpected. And can I tell you, when he comes back to the temple on Monday and does what he does, that was also unexpected. So can I give you just a kind of parenthesis application for your life? God will often do the unexpected. He found that to be true. He thought it was going to go this way, and then it goes another way. God will often do the unexpected in your life, but don't take that to mean that he doesn't know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. But when things don't go the way we anticipate them going, that's a sensitive moment and people can quickly become discouraged. But know this, what Jesus does on that Sunday and on this Monday is in light of what he's going to do on Friday. So let's not ever forget that. What God is doing in your life is always intended to draw you near Christ crucified and resurrected. Now, this very next day, he walks from Bethany. We're told that, verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany. Bethany's about two miles away. So uh, a two-mile walk. He comes back on his way to Jerusalem. Let's start here with this point number one, a real simple point. But let's first observe the actions of Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. Now, remember, every moment in the final week of Jesus is weighted with importance, well over a third of Mark's gospel is devoted to the final week of Jesus. That's Sunday to Sunday, from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday. 11, chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 will all be about this one week. So let's start here, observing the actions. Is First of all, we see a fruitless tree is cursed. A fruitless tree is cursed. We read about that in verses 12 through 14. Now, Middle Eastern fig trees and that part of the world... Uh, bear two kinds of fruit. When the leaves start to come in the spring, before the full-on figs arrive, they, they bear little nodules, which were abundant, and everybody loved to eat them. It was like the best snack of that. It was the, it was the nabs and Dr. Pepper of the day. When you're traveling and going somewhere, and you're going to stop, we stop at a convenience store, they'd stop by the fig tree. Just going to say, I'm going to get a little something. All the kids would go and get a little something. And, and you remember, 
thousands of people are traveling to Jerusalem. And Jesus sees this fig tree and says, well, let's go get a little something to eat. But when he gets there on closer inspection, there is no fruit. Verse 13, seen in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it wasn't the season for figs. So the tree looks okay from a distance. We tracking together? The tree looks okay from a distance, but when it's Jesus who draws near to inspect, he doesn't find any fruit. Are we talking about trees or are we talking about people? Of course, the answer is, well, yes. Well, he's talking about me and he's talking about you. And can we take a time out for just a moment for me to say this? What Jesus does here is when he walks into the temple. When God measures the spiritual health of a people, do you know who he starts with? Jesus doesn't, we might think, Jesus, let's go to the Roman Senate and clean it out. It's not what he does. Let's go to the Roman Colosseum and tear that thing down. It's not what he does. He goes into the temple. When God measures the spiritual health of a people, he begins with those who claim to belong to him. We need to see that from this passage. He's entering Jerusalem, not Rome. And he says, we really want to talk about spiritual health and life. This is where we're going to go. Because there's a tree that should be bearing fruit, but when I inspect it, there is no fruit here. When you hear fig leaf, that should also be a callback to Genesis, right? When they tried to cover themselves following the fall, they sewed fig leaves together. Well, let's talk about covering as well. The best you do will not cover you before the Lord's inspection. The only thing that can cover you before the Lord's inspection is the Lord's righteousness. And again, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to provide true covering. Well, from the tree, we learn something really important. Something may look healthy and alive from a distance, but on closer inspection, specifically inspection of the Lord, we find that the tree doesn't have any fruit. Now, as I read through these verses, remember when Jesus enters the temple on Sunday, it just says he looks around. We need to be sensitive to the sight of the Lord. Remember, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at your heart. And Jesus is taught previously in Matthew chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree, listen, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Are you bearing fruit? That's the mark of life is to bear fruit. Growth without fruit implies decay. That's what Jesus is teaching about this. It's, it's, it's in leaf, but there's no fruit. What is happening here? It's the same thing that's happening in the temple. There's an appearance of spirituality, but it's robbed of actual life. So in both these scenes, the tree and the temple, the same lesson is being taught. We'll get to the temple in just a, a moment. But is your life bearing fruit? What's true of fruit? Fruit nourishes and fruit reproduces. So the mark of a disciple of Jesus, this is really straightforward, isn't it? The mark of a disciple of Jesus is that disciple makes disciples, nourishes other people's lives, and reproduces faith in them. That's the mark of a follower of Jesus. And this is important for us because we too can be all sorts of, uh, fill our lives with all sorts of religious activity, but if we're not making disciples, the implication is we're not bearing fruit. So Jesus makes a distinction between religious activity and real spiritual life. 
And that gets clarified in the next scene. First we see Jesus cursing a fruitless tree, and then we'll see a prayerless, let's see now, a prayerless temple is cleansed. He comes back to the temple, and verse 15 drives out those who sold. Just listen for a moment to the verbs applied to Jesus from the passage when he enters the temple. He enters, he drives out, he overturns, he won't allow anyone to carry anything through, and he's teaching them. This is the righteous anger of God on display. Well, my dad, when I was growing up, he didn't get mad easily, but when he got mad, everybody paid attention. Now, here's a, here's a, um, here's a way you can discern righteous anger from unrighteous anger. Before Jesus enters the temple and drives people out, the day before, he had wept over Jerusalem, right? Can we see that together? Now, a lot of people get angry, but it's not righteous anger. This is righteous anger on display. Jesus has looked around. Remember, he came first, looked around the temple, takes inventory, goes back two miles to Bethany, probably prays all night, and then he comes back and says, we've got to do some things, and let's talk about what he sees and then what he does. He sees a temple that's very busy. The ancient historian Josephus recorded that during Passover week, and this is Passover week, 255,000 lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple courts. So think about it this way with me. Think about Wall Street, right? The trading floor. Has anybody ever been to the trading floor on Wall Street? Or, or maybe you've seen it on television or you've seen pictures. I mean, it's chaotic, People are screaming and shouting. Deals are being made. It's so tumultuous. Think about that scene and now add 255,000 lambs to the scene. It's crazy, isn't it? This is where the Gentiles, those who don't know God, are supposed to find God through prayer and quiet reflection. And now think of what is going on here in the temple. A lot of people use the temple simply as a shortcut. If you know the layout of Jerusalem in that time, you're trying to get from point A to point B. Uh, a lot of people would just say, well, instead of going around the temple, because that's the long way, let's just go through it. So what began to happen with the temple is the place that God designed for people to meet with him has become just like anywhere else on earth. And you think about it for a moment. Let's talk about the money changers. They're specified. It says he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, quick question, who's complicit here, the buyers or the sellers? This matters for your life, by the way. This matters for your life. Don't go around complaining about what everybody's selling if you're one of those who are buying. Amen? It's the buyers and sellers. You're both complicit in this. I'm driving you both out. So what are the money changers doing? You read all about the temple in the Old Testament. Which verse can you go to and hear about the responsibilities of the money changers? Nowhere. They're nowhere present. It's not Leviticus such and such. So what's going on here? Well, let's just put it in everyday terms. Let's pretend for a moment that you're alive at that time and you and your family are traveling to the temple. It's a huge thing. Biggest day of the year. And let's suppose you're from a family from another country and you're going to the temple for Passover. You're going to worship God. You know the uh, the principles, you, you, you've got your, let's just say, for the sake of illustration, your eight-year-old son and his responsibility is to carry the pigeon that you're going to sacrifice in the temple. 
And you've told him to take care of the pigeon, to protect the pigeon, and that's his responsibility. You're not a family of much means, and uh, so the, the whole trip is uh, financially taxing, but you believe it's worthwhile to go so that you can teach your family about the Lord. And you get to the temple, and you've got your pigeon, and a temple official immediately comes up to you and says, I'm sorry, that temple's not appropriate for sacrifice. Now, immediately what's happened to the eight-year-old boy? He's been told, you didn't do what you were supposed to do, so he's, his countenance is cast down. But then the official says, don't worry, you can buy a pigeon here. And so you reach in your pocket and say, okay, if that's what I'm supposed to do, I'll do that. And you get out your currency, and then the official says, well, I'm sorry, we don't accept that currency here. You've got to go over here to the money changer. If you've ever traveled internationally, you've done this. You've, tra- you've, you've changed your dollars to euros or dollars to yen or whatever. And what do you think's happening with the money changers? Hey, they're not there out of the kindness of their hearts. They're there to change your money and make a profit. So now, what you thought you could afford, you can't afford. And they're skimming off the top, making money. And by the way, they got a captive audience, right? It's sort of like when you go to the movie theater and the Coca-Cola costs a certain thing outside the theater, and now it costs a certain thing in the theater. Why? Because they got a captive audience. And so don't bring your pigeon in here. We're going to mark it up. And the currency, it's a, well, it's a certain kind of business model, but it's also proclaiming something about the Lord that's not of him. And so it's chaotic. It's busy. If you were like me, you're not that great at math anyway, but you feel pretty strongly that the cost of the pigeon is 10 times what it should be. But you just rushed along to the point that you're just trying to get done what you came to do. Your son's crying because he feels like he's failed the family. You begin to tell your children about the glorious deliverance of Egypt, out of Egypt, and the might and power of God over the Passover. They can't hear a word that you're saying because of all the noise. And you begin to realize that this temple is no different than all the pagan Roman temples in Ephesus and Corinth and so on. It's the very same system, the very same things going on. And you begin to think to yourself, it's not supposed to be like this. And then you start to get angry and look up and lo and behold, here's a man turning over money changer tables and driving people out and saying this system is corrupt this isn't the way it's supposed to be and that's what's happening as Jesus sees a religiously busy temple with a lot of activity a lot of coming and going a lot of transactions but in all that activity there is no actual life and the things being proclaimed about God are not true and praise God almighty Jesus ain't having it says this isn't going to happen not this week because the real Passover is coming. See, Jesus sees a scene in which no one was praying. God help us. God help us not be prayerless in our churches. No one was praying. No one is reverently seeking the Lord. The temple was supposed to be like nowhere else on earth, and yet Jesus finds it to be like everywhere else on earth. Are we talking about temples or are we talking about people? Who's with me? Which are we talking about? What is the temple? Is it that building? Well, Jesus already said in that passage, uh, in the Gospels of the same day, this whole thing's coming down. But the temple of God's going to remain. Who's the temple? You are. So from this passage, could you just ask, is there anything in my life that needs to be overturned? Is my life full of religious activity, or am I reverently, prayerfully seeking the Lord so that I'm not like anybody else on earth? My life is only 
understood in light of, I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus finds a system that's completely set up to fleece people for more money. He finds a place where money is God and people are used. He finds a place where people are going through religious motions but have no real life. And he overturns it. He drives them out. A cursed tree and a clear temple are testimony that Jesus is no fool. He sees everything clearly. And that includes your heart. That includes my heart. That includes your life. That includes my life. So what are the tree and the temple both representing? They both represent the same thing, and we know what they represent on the basis of what Jesus says in verse 22. Have faith in God. So the fruitless tree and the prayerless temple both represent the same thing. Someone who is about religious activity but has no actual genuine saving, life-giving, reproducing, fruit-bearing faith. The fruitless tree... And the prayerless temple also underscore for us why Jesus had to come. Why Jesus has to come. This message is not bear bear more fruit in your life and pray more. No, we don't have it in us. Let's talk now not just understanding the actions of Jesus as he goes to Jerusalem, but secondly, in light of these scenes, understand the actions of Jesus as he takes up the cross. That's why he's come to Jerusalem. That's why he was born. And as your pastor, may I encourage you again, build your life on crucified Christ. Understand the actions of Jesus as he takes up the cross. Here's the first action. The most fruitful work is Jesus taking our curse on the tree. Let's talk about cursed trees for a moment. He goes into Jerusalem, sees a tree that bears no fruit and curses it, and then he's going to be hung on the tree and bear our curse for us. Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. John Stopp puts it this way The essence of sin is man submitting, or I'm sorry, sub- substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. That's what Jesus is doing in Jerusalem. He is, friends, the Passover lamb. Because we got to get out of bigger things than Egypt. We're enslaved to bigger things than Pharaoh. And it's just by the blood of the lamb that the curse that we deserve will pass over us. It's only by the blood of Christ that our sins can be covered. So are you united by faith to that Jesus? Because we can be just like them. How did things get the way they were in the temple? How did they get that way? Gradually, 
just a little step at a time before they arrived at a moment that the scene at the temple was so far removed from what God had actually said the temple was to be, right? Are you united by faith to the Jesus that bears eternal fruit? It's impossible, I believe, on the authority of Scripture, to be united by faith to that Jesus and then not live a life that's distinct from those around you. I'm not saying you're going to live a perfect life. You're always prayerful. You're always perfect. You're sinless. Not anything like that, but Christ begins to transform you, overturn some things so that they can be placed in order. It's not a matter of busyness. It is a matter of heart transformation. Are you becoming more like Jesus in your real life and in your real person? Are you moving away from anxiety to trust in the Lord? Or moving away from anger and bitterness to joy in Jesus? God can change you. But I will tell you that God cannot come in your life and not change you. You see, love is not accepting things or people as they are. Now, does Jesus love the people in the temple? Absolutely, he does. But this is important, particularly for our generation, to understand what love really means. And the word that's used over and over for God's disposition to you is that he loves you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him won't perish but will have everlasting life. He doesn't walk into the temple and say, well, they're really trying the best they can. He doesn't walk into the uh, temple and say, well, I really love these people, so let's just keep the status quo. After all, to really love a person is to accept them as they are. Nonsense! Love is actually the willingness to confront what will ultimately destroy your soul. But not just with words, but with sacrifice. Jesus doesn't cleanse the temple and then not go to the cross, right? He cleanses the temple on his way to the cross. So understand this is the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. It is both confrontation and covering. And both are necessary because if you don't, aren't ever confronted with audacity of your sin, you'll never appreciate the covering you actually receive in Christ Jesus. So if seeing in the prayerfully the whole counsel of God, Jesus has wept over the temple, Jesus has cleansed the temple, and then Jesus, who is the true temple, for what is the temple? The temple is designed to be the meeting place of sinful man with holy God. He is the real temple And that's the next thing we can observe as he takes up the cross. He is the true temple, and he is steadfast in intercession and prayer. You know, we've got our 24-hour day of praying and fasting starting today at 1 o'clock. And I've just been encouraged by this simple truth, and so I'll give it to you. We've aimed to have every second of 24 hours covered. And y'all have been awesome every time slot is taken. If you've not taken an hour and want to, by all means, you're still welcome. But here's what I've been thinking about this week, is that Jesus is steadfast in prayer. That's what the Bible says he's doing right now at the right hand of the Father. He ever lives to make intercession for us. So even when we don't pray, even if somebody early in the morning, I slept in, I forgot, somebody's still praying. He's our advocate. He does everything that we can't do for ourselves. He's the true temple 
this temple in Jerusalem was always just in designed by God to be a picture of the temple that's true to come in Christ Jesus. Now, let's respond, and I think the Scripture helps us with this. How should we respond to these scenes? Cursing a tree and cleansing a temple. I think that's the very next passage right here, verse 20. They passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. For truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. There's a lot of uh, emphasis from Jesus in these scenes on prayer. So one thing that we can take from this is prayer is what keeps you abiding in Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing, but if you abide in my love and remain in my love, you will bear much fruit. This is what he teaches, right, in the Gospel of John. And so praying, how often should you pray? Pray without ceasing. Pray to stay in an abiding uh, relationship with the Lord. He'll keep you. He'll keep you, but you stay steadfast in prayer. He says, my house up here, when he's teaching them, he's cleaning it out. Why? Because of they're doing the one thing, I'm sorry, they're, they're not doing the one thing he asked them to do in his house, to be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. So third, this is our last point, in response, let's ask, what in my life needs to be overturned? What in my life needs to be overturned? Is there anything in your life right now that doesn't need a slight adjustment? Like kind of straightening the table in the living room again. Does anybody do that? Like they're sitting quite where just a little adjust. I'm not talking about adjusting a table. I'm talking about overturning it. Is there anything in your life right now that just needs to be flipped and turned or driven out? So a couple of questions. On close and careful inspection by Jesus, am I bearing fruit for his kingdom? On close and careful inspection by Jesus, am I bearing fruit for his kingdom? Here's the glorious good news about Jesus. He'll never point out something that needs to be changed and then leave it up to you to do. Now, he's always on the job with you. His spirit's going to be in you, right? Remember, in the temple, they began to do and trust in things that were not commanded or mentioned in the Bible. How did they get there? Gradually, often with probably good intentions. Well, it might be a good idea for people whose pigeons got lost along the way that we provide some pigeons here. That would be helpful. Oh, so-and-so, well, I can't quite take that money. Change. Let's change it over, and that will be helpful. Uh, good intentions, but then other things slip in often too, Right? We, like them, can begin to do and trust in things that are not commanded or mentioned in the Bible. 
More and more in my life, I want to be able to back up my decisions on the veracity of Scripture. I'm doing this because it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, I'm saved by grace, through whatever it may be. So just can I just gently but clearly say some things that we've begun to do, some traditions that are ingrained, that if we're not careful, begin to replace what God has actually said to do. Just be specific for just a moment because there's nothing more important than repentance and faith and belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know, just for example, nowhere in the Bible is the sinner's prayer written. It's not there. Nowhere in the Bible are you said to walk down the aisle in order to be saved. What the Bible does say is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth and then on the testimony of Scripture have a life that bears fruit, then you know that you are born again. So we want to be very careful when we open up the Scripture and see the inclinations of people then, we have to be aware that we are just like them. Now, I'm not telling you if you prayed the sinner's prayer or you walked down the aisle that that was somehow wrong or this, that, or the other, but I am encouraging you to line up your understanding with salvation, with terminology, and teaching, most importantly, that comes from the Scripture. Have you ever come to the Lord? Have you ever cast your burden on Him? Are you trusting that He is sustaining you? Because the enemy is so deceptive that uses things even that start out well-intentioned and twisted so that He can blind the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the hope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I am saying this in case anyone listening can examine your life and find absolutely no fruit. I've never made a disciple. I'm completely and utterly prayerless. But quick to say, but I walk down the aisle. Do you understand what I'm saying? True conversion is brought about by God, and His Spirit of God lives in your life bringing transformation. We are rescued by grace, yes and amen. But no one rescued by grace ever fails to bear fruit that are the works of faith. Works or faith without works, as the Bible says, is dead. So can God Almighty, can this Jesus that we see right here come and live in my life and bring about a slight adjustment? No. If he's come in my life, it has brought about radical transformation in everything about me, how I think, how I act, how I treat people, what I live for, what my heart is set on. It's completely been transformed. Two other quick questions, but they're important. Next one is, am I a person of religious busyness or rooted in spirit-led prayerfulness? Just ask it real simply. Is my life full of more religious activity, but when I do examine my life, I don't find a spirit-led prayerfulness? It's possible, friends. Unfortunately, it's possible to go to church every Sunday, Wednesday, and whenever for years and years and years without ever praying. Now, Romans 8 says, His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are His children and by His Spirit cry out, Abba, Father. Meaning we're praying to the God who has redeemed us. So if we're not careful, listen, 255,000 lambs brought into the temple, and then the lamb comes into the temple and he's not recognized. It's possible. It's possible that no one who entered that temple 
knew what was happening Friday except Christ. And then the last one, I simply take this from what Jesus says. Am I willing to forgive others who have wronged me? It's what he says. Now, can we tie the... He says, if anyone says to this mountain, move, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, it's a continuation of thought, forgive. So I'm just going by what Jesus says here, that one of the hardest mountains you'll ever have to move in life is that, forgiving others. And I think this is the distinction between religious formality, as we've seen displayed in the tree in the temple, and abundant life. It's the difference between prayerlessness and prayerfulness. If Jesus Christ is Lord, He will drive out everything in my life that misrepresents His name. Amen? It's what He's doing in the temple. If He enters your life, you're the temple. If you're a follower of Jesus, He's going to drive some things out. I can assure you, I can assure you, when he comes on the scene, he's not going to find everything nice and orderly and just as it, he's going to find it just like the temple. Probably a little too much emphasis on money. Probably a little too much looking out for number one. Probably a little too few moments spent focusing on God and who he really is. Probably far too much prayerlessness. And he's going to drive those things out. Why? Because what is the temple? What is the temple? It's where you meet with God. It's where you meet with God. It's what He made you for. So if you hunger for righteousness, if you have something in you that's saying, I want more from life, can I tell you the tree to go to? Not an old fig tree. You go to that cursed, old, rugged cross. That's the tree of life. And that's the life giver on the tree. See, there was a mountain that separated us from him. But praise God Almighty, Jesus has climbed it. Jesus has conquered it. And Jesus has thrown that mountain into the sea. Have faith in this God. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's stand together and we'll pray together. And then we're going to respond to this God together. If you've got a burden this morning, of course, of course, you can stay right where you are. And pray to the Lord, God, take this burden. The invitation is open. Sometimes I know in my own life it's, it's helpful a worship service often is a uh, burden-casting service, and we need them every week to be together. We're going to pray together and sing together, and then I'm going to trust the Spirit of the living God to work among us. If you have the humility to, to allow God to draw near to you, to do a fruit inspection, He does that for your good, and He does that because He loves you. And at the same time, 
He's so gloriously merciful that he also draws you to the tree that's cursed and fruitful. It's amazing grace that it's both. He takes the curse that we deserve, the withering, if we want to think about it that way, that we deserve in exchange. He gives us righteousness. So maybe the best use of your time this morning would simply be a return to the cross and a clinging to it again. Father, I am so thankful for Jesus. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be moved. God, I'm thankful that the one who won't let the righteous be moved is the one who overturns, cleanses the temple, takes our curse on the tree, is the true temple of righteousness where sinful man and holy God can come together again. We're grateful and all of our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now give us grace to think and pray and respond in a way that is in line with this Christ whom we proclaim. In Jesus' name, amen.